actually, before we start, you and I, because I was listening to your podcast too, and you and I have stuff in common. I'm from Canton, Ohio. Oh, and you're okay. from Cleveland, right? Yeah, we're close. Yeah. And then the other thing is, is you alluded to it. Did you sell Cutco knives? I sold uh, knives. I, they may have been Cutco. Okay. It, it was in my, during college. Yeah, yeah. Um, you know, somebody said, oh, you know, this is uh, a good way to make money. And for an eighteen-year-old kid who did, who was, you know, going around knocking on doors when people, yeah. <laughs> the last thing in the world they needed was it's a, a knife. Cutco knife right. for, you know, three times what it would cost. Uh-huh. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> so Those are hard them. to sell. Yeah. Those did are... you sell them too? Mm-hmm. Oh my god! My Any... mom bought some, so did she really? <laughs> I don't know if she was a sucker. I mean, there was one guy because I guess you go through in groups in class, you know, your training class, and you have to, you know, check back, see how you're doing uh, this. Okay. One guy got into the uh, like a fisherman's club, and they all wanted the fillet knives. And he made a killing off of the Cutco fillet knives right, so for fishing. We were at the Fisher hunting uh, deal up in Alachua about uh, four or five months ago, and my wife um, hooked on to these cutting knives. You know that the, they were selling because they're they were for the kitchen, but you know mm-hmm. they also had stuff for hunting and fishing, and you know they. Yeah. And they were great. Yeah. We love them. Wow. I mean, during Thanksgiving, yeah. you know, you can really yeah, exactly. slice the turkey. Exactly. Exactly. <laughs> I thought they were great knives. I was like, well, this is oh, a they great, are great knives. They actually cut, you know. Oh, like, yeah. you, you know, the deal is after about a year or two, you know, the knives, you know, lose yeah. their edge, right? Mm-hmm. And most of us don't, like, uh, sharpen them every week or month or whatever, right? So mm-hmm. all of a sudden you get a new fresh knife and you go... This is amazing. (laughs) So this is what a knife does. This is how knives work. Exactly. Oh, boy. Oh, that's funny. Well, well, welcome Jeffrey Meldon to the We're Not Done Yet is what we call our podcast, the Hunter and Parker podcast. Thank you so much for for joining us. Well, thank you very much, Parker. It's uh, my pleasure to be here. Mm -hmm. So, Jeffrey, it's on our station that you were Tom Petty's first attorney. Yes. Uh, it's a great story because um, I'm from uh, the Cleveland, Ohio area originally. Really? Yes. And uh, I understand. Uh, yeah, you're from, you're, you're, Ohio, you're from so, Cat. Hey, neighbor. He's Ohio. Yeah, yeah, yeah. People just yeah. go at it. He's from Detroit that. area. So. <laughs> yeah. Oh, wow. What a small So world. I, I grew up rooting for, you know, the Cleveland Indians and the Cleveland Browns mm-hmm. and uh, all the, uh, you know, Cleveland teams. It was before the Cavs even existed. Oh, wow. So, uh, <laughs> but it, it was interesting because um, uh, going back, uh, my father had uh, the largest jazz nightclub between Chicago and New York in Cleveland. It was called the Loop Lounge. And um, he owned it from 1950 to 56 and brought in the greatest jazz artists uh, of the day uh, to his club. It was a Uh big club, like 400 seats. So I grew up all around music and my dad being a, uh, you know, it was like being a promoter. Mm -hmm. And, uh, you know, we, you know, there was a lot of very, very famous, um, you know, people there, uh, you know, Lionel Hampton and uh, Ella Fitzgerald wow. and Dinah Washington. And, you know, the some of the uh, Charlie Parker was the greatest sax player of his day there. He played there. Uh, and my dad, you know, would come home and tell stories. We we got to have dinner with uh, Gene Krupa, who was a, a terrific uh drummer and so growing up I, I was around um celebrities and also hearing about it and we were talking uh, earlier hunter about uh, vinyl and you know <laughs> when you when you book an act in they bring uh they bring promo records yes you know what a promo uh-huh. record looks like. Uh-huh. It's got it's stamped, so you can't resell it, right? <laughs> exactly. You're not supposed to. You're not supposed to. So, our, in our home, my dad bought a nice stereo system, mm-hmm. and we had promo records um, all over. It was mostly jazz artists, and uh, you know. However, uh, my dad got to know a lot of uh, the most significant DJs in the history of rock and roll. Oh, cool. 
the two most important DJs in my mind in the history of rock and roll were good friends of my dad. That was Alan Freed. And then there was another famous DJ who broke Elvis Presley. And his name is Bill Randall. So if you Google Bill Randall, okay, you'll see that he was the most powerful DJ in, at least in Ohio. He was at a 100,000 watt station. I think it was W-E-R-E. Okay. Uh, I think Alan Freed was on WJW. uh, And I remember as a kid listening to uh, Alan Freed uh, doing his late night shows. Oh, he was the moon and doggy he, and everything. Yeah, the oh, moon dog show. Yeah, yeah. rock yeah. and roll. Oh. We only have that term because of Alan. Yeah. So Alan Freed broke. Yeah, he broke the term rock and roll, which was because he was bringing black music into uh, the white genre and stations where you know white people were listening because there was what they called race records. Uh, before that, which were just uh, black artists, and they were being played on black stations. And in Cleveland, it was uh, seminal when Alan Freed came in and uh, brought in, uh, you know, his shows and everything he was doing. What isn't uh, known uh, widely is that uh, Colonel Parker, who was uh, Elvis Presley's Presley's manager, um, he got together with Bill Randall uh, and um, made a very focused plan to break Elvis Presley. And Elvis Presley was, you know, uh, the king. Yeah. And now, when Bill Randall got on an artist on WERE, a 100,000-watt station in Cleveland, and blasted it all over, uh, it was magic. And he, so uh, he is largely credited for uh, creating the phenomenon around Elvis Presley. Wow. wow. Very cool. And if we <laughs> have Elvis, and we most likely would never have Tom Petty. Eh? Well, I think certainly <laughs> Tom Petty, uh, you know, that's a good segue, yeah. Parker. <laughs> because, no, um, so um, there was a guy named Earl Jernigan who was from Gainesville, Florida, and he was a guy that um, had the... Uh, movie uh, equipment, and mm-hmm. he he went to Ocala uh, when Elvis was there. He was recording, um, making a movie. So we knew Earl Jernigan in Gainesville later on because when I bought the Great Southern Music Hall in 1974, Earl Jernigan was the only one who could teach us how to operate the film equipment, okay? So that was later on, but as as uh, as, as the story goes, uh-huh. Tom Petty was a youngster around 1960, 61, 62, and when Elvis was in Ocala, his uncle was Earl Jernigan, who was the film guy, uh-huh. and Earl brought him along to Ocala to um, meet Elvis, and it had such an impact on Tom that uh, he decided he wanted to become um, a rock and roll star. And later on, the Beatles uh, performing on Ed Sullivan's show cemented the deal. Oh, yeah. yeah. Oh, wow. To know at that age what you want to do and just focus on that. That's really what cool. Was, what was the, you, you have actually met Tom before, right? Yeah. So here's the deal. Um, I moved to Gainesville, Florida in 1970, September of 1970, mm-hmm. I had some friends from Cleveland who had moved to Florida, and uh, my my friend uh, Leon was in a uh, uh, going to graduate school at the University of Florida, and he said, "Come on and visit." So I had been visiting a couple times and mm-hmm. came down, and I was I had already graduated law school. And I was, uh, you know, getting to be a long-haired hippie. He's a young boy. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, I got the gauge while I said, hmm, this seems like a very cool place to <laughs> hang out. This is my kind know? of vibe over here. <laughs> <laughs> Love it. Love so, it. So anyhow, we, my friend Leon, his brother Marty, who was the pot grower, and then we had the uh, you know Larry we all had names right so you know uh, you know Leon's nickname was you know the madman oh, and uh, um, Marty was uh, the wolf because he could sing 
um, like Howlin' Wolf. Ooh. Oh, okay. So wow. that was that was pretty cool. And what then, was, what uh, was your nickname again? Okay, I was the barrister. The barrister? Of the course, I was. A, I had a law degree. Ah. Okay, uh, Larry, he was a Mad Hatter, and uh, awesome. there, and and Jeff, uh, you know. He he was uh, you know the wild man. I know we all had names, and collectively, um, to make money, we um, uh, made candles on an open fire, and uh, we nicknamed ourselves the Candle People. Huh. Now the Candle People um, made um, candles. They were really cool, layered colors and things like that. And then we would go to the dormitories at the University of Florida, spread out a blanket. Okay, we went to the girls' dormitories, of course. of course. course. (laughs) We'd spread out a blanket, put out our candles there, and uh, that's how uh, we were able to um, survive. Uh, selling candles. candles and the candle. Remember, he has a law degree. <laughs> <laughs> so the candle people got involved in a number of different things. Uh, we started the um, uh, Hogtown Food Co-op. I don't know if you guys have ever heard the term Hogtown as a nickname mm-hmm. for Gainesville. Yes. Well, yeah. we we reinvented that name. It hadn't been used for 50 or 100 years. No kidding. Oh, I didn't know that. And we came from Ohio. We thought Hogtown was such a friggin' funny name for <laughs> Let's start a food, uh, an organic food co-op, and we called it the Hogtown Food Co-op. And it was the first time Hogtown had been used in centuries, or wow. at least 50 years. Wow. And Bring so we started the food co-op, and we we got to involved with the community. Uh, we started a, a free school. Not it was an alternative learning community, mostly for kids that were dropping out of high school because their parents couldn't control them because they were getting stoned all the time. <laughs> <laughs> and so we we tried to help get them, you know, at least uh, you know squared away in the right path. We we wrote for the alternative newspaper. Oh, cool. uh, we. One of the most significant things and interesting things was that we started uh, working promoting concerts. Mm-hmm. And Tom Petty was involved with Mud Crutch. And Mud Crutch, along with um, a lot of other groups, there was Road Turkey and RGF, that, you know, were very big groups uh, in Gainesville at the time that actually later morphed into um, what became uh, Tom Petty and the Heartbreakers. And so... We got together with Tom and Mudcrutch early on before I started practicing law. Okay. okay. Remember, I moved down in 1970, and I had to, um, you know, first, you know, get the determination that I was going to spend three or four months in a in a library doing nothing but studying for the mm-hmm. Florida Bar, right? Uh-huh. So that took me about six months, and then I signed up for the next Florida Bar, uh-huh. and uh, by, through some act of God, I passed it. On your first try? <laughs> On my first yeah. try. <laughs> I swear to God, I, I just, I got really serious for three months and prepared, and that's how we did it. Isn't that Anyhow. awesome when you think you're going to fail a test, but you pass it? <laughs> yes. I'm good at this, I guess. <laughs> Anyhow, during that time, um, we were working with all the local groups, uh, and the Candle people were co-promoting a number, uh, number of different shows at the University of Florida out on the Plaza of the Americas. Uh, there was a university auditorium. There was a rights union out there, and we... Um, got to know all the bands uh, that were uh, playing locally in town. Mm-hmm. And it was a vibrant scene. I mean, almost every week there would be something, some live music going on. And uh, the oh. Mud Crutch was one of my favorites. I remember them playing at the Ratskeller. And um, I heard them play, uh, first time I heard them, they were playing uh, a Chuck Berry song, Johnny Be Good. Oh. And and Mike Campbell started riffing on the guitar, and I went, "Wow, this guy can really, you know, wow. uh, play." Yeah. And uh, and then and that was my favorite song uh, that they played because I knew it. Okay? <laughs> <laughs> I knew it growing up because I was a rock and roller. I mean, that, going back to when I went to college at Ohio State, I was also the uh, social director and the rush chairman. So I used to book acts in college. For your fraternity? For my fraternity. Oh. You know, I remember having a, 
there is a group called Booker T and the uh, MGs. MGs. Yeah, oh yeah. my Green gosh. Onion. So I booked him for a one o'clock Sunday show at the fraternity, and they had played till five o'clock the night wow. before. I had to go track him down at some motel downtown in Columbus, Ohio, and drag him out of bed. And I was not their favorite guy at that moment. And everybody at the fraternity hated me because I told them, show up at 1 o'clock. We're having Booker T and the MG oh, show up. So oh. so anyhow, getting back to you know Tom Petty, we were um, all working collaboratively together to make uh, things happen. And we came up with the idea in December of 1970 mm-hmm. to do uh, a impromptu uh, festival that was loosely fashioned um, after Woodstock. Okay. And the the way we were able to do it is because um, Mud Crutch, I think Mike Campbell uh, and um, I think Randy... And maybe Tom, they had uh, right Randy behind. Randy Meisner? No, 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 oh. no. Randy was the drummer for okay. Mud Crutch. Okay. Um, anyhow, he, um, they were renting a shack. And when I say a shack, mm-hmm. it didn't have hot or cold running water, and, and it certainly didn't have a toilet. <laughs> oh. Okay. And it was located <laughs> on 441 north of Gainesville, where a famous uh, club named Dubs was. <gasps> yeah. So, okay. So they were right behind Dubs. And by the way, Mud Crutch learned how to play, and Tom Petty got to be a good musician because um, Dub Thomas, who owned Dubs, uh, would book them in for a, you know weeks at a time, and oh. they became almost like the house band. And you know, you'd play five or six sets a night, six nights a week. So it was, you know, Sunday. There's your practice right there. That was your practice. And so they were right, they were, you know, just a half a mile away uh, and could literally walk from the shack over to where it was. Now, the shack was on about 25 acres of property. So that became the first Mud Crutch Festival. Okay, right. Now, how do you put a festival together? You invite people. You well, you but you also have to like get certain things. Like, so we had to get a stage, mm-hmm. and there was a guy uh, that had a plumbing company, and they used scaffolding in plumbing uh, to do certain projects. So Dan Riles was his name. So Dan, he was in charge of the stage, getting the stage together, and uh, we put that together. And then we had to figure out um, how to get supplies. So the candle people and others went around to, you know, Winn-Dixie and anybody else. There was a pick and save and there was all these. And we got all the merchants to donate things so that we could uh, make this festival happen. I remember going to Baskin Robbins ice cream shop to get empty, empty ice cream uh, containers. You know, the barrels of mm-hmm. that they keep the ice cream in. Yeah, what'd you use them for? Well, we we did it to pay for the, we, we had no fee to get in. Okay. But we put these barrels out, and if you wanted to donate a buck or two, you could donate the money. That's okay? cool. So then we had to get the entertainment. So that's where Tom Petty came in, because Tom and the group, and there was Tommy Ledden, whose brother mm-hmm. was yeah. in the Eagles at that time, and, yeah. uh, you know, Bernie Ledden. Mm-hmm. And so Bernie uh, had kind of... Um, I think he was already out in California. He may have been with the Flying Burrito Brothers at that time. Anyhow, uh, so Tom Ledden and Tom Petty were the leaders of Mud Crutch because Tom Ledden knew a lot from his brother, mm-hmm. and Tom Petty, you know, was um, you know naturally uh, you know a leader. So anyhow, uh, they put the word out, and they must have had fifteen bands show up wow. and, for free. Bringing their own equipment, okay. Uh, Mudcrutch set up whatever equipment they had, and they uh-huh. shared, you know, shared whatever they had. And it was a one-day festival uh, on a Saturday, and we we made, uh, you know, we took pieces of paper, uh, drew drew by hand a very crude map, and and you know what time and where. <laughs> 
uh, made made a bunch of copies. I don't know if we had Xerox machines. I don't know what we used back then. <laughs> like but a any, ditto machine or something. A, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Anyhow, so we took we we went around every you know light pole in Gainesville and you know would would put a little uh, nail into it you know or a staple whatever we did you yeah. know we put up you know hundreds and hundreds of these and and then uh, there was a station. Uh, WGVL uh, that's now KISS mm-hmm. and um, we went out there and um, the disc jockeys, they had a room about this size here mm-hmm. and we would go out late at night uh, and just get go on the radio and start talking about what was going on in the Gainesville music scene and um, it got the word out because everybody... WGVL was the first album-oriented rock ah. station in Gainesville, mm-hmm. okay? And it was owned, it was owned by um, Irv Uram, his mother and aunt, and and they were the, the least likely people to own a very <laughs> hip station, okay? <laughs> However, when they turned it over to the DJs, yeah. right, and they weren't they there, knew what to do. anything yeah. would go. And so sure. we would be out there, and um, the, the turnout was incredible. It was, wow. I mean, you know, literally thousands of people showed up. Did and- you expect that many? No, we didn't know what was going to happen. Well, we were always optimistic. You yeah. know, it was like, okay, it's gonna be awesome. yeah, yeah we're, we're going to throw a, you know, we're going to have a little mud crutch festival. That's what yeah. we called it. And then, uh, mm-hmm. you know, we didn't know how many people were going to show up. But, you know, all I can tell you is the Baskin Robbins um, containers started filling up. Oh, God. So after the, after the, you know, day was over and everybody said, wow, this is great. We started talking about doing a whole weekend festival mm-hmm. instead of a one-day festival. So within, I think it was maybe forty-five days later, we had Mud Crutch Two Festival. Oh wow! And that was—I mean, people were bringing their sleeping bags and their, That's you it. know, whatever you know, coolers they had. And uh, I mean, we we didn't even have concession stands. No. Okay. Oh I mean, yeah, it was for like, yourself. It was like BYO, wow. and uh, people. Uh, I think we started it on a Friday, and it uh, wound up. Uh, people started leaving on Sunday, and it was even more incredible. And I have to say that you know Tom Petty and Mud Crutch, and you know had a tremendous influence because they were friends with um, all the bands, not just in Gainesville. I mean, we were talking about bands, you know, going all the way down, you know, Tampa, Orlando, Jacksonville, Mm -hmm. Daytona Beach. So it was a very, um, you know, amazing uh, experience just to see that with no money, we had put together a mini Woodstock. Yes. Right. I was just going to say a little mini because it seems like people are totally fine just sitting out there for God knows how long just so they can get into the festival. You just need a sleeping bag. That's all you need. So anyhow, so so that was um, how I started, you know, to uh, know Tom Petty, just working together and doing things. And it it wound up being a... um, that we were very involved with the music community and the music community back then. I mean, you have to understand that, you know, you had um, two members of of the um, Eagles, um, Don Felder and Bernie Ledden were there. Steven Stills, he, he used to sell Coca-Cola's at the uh, the Gator football games. Oh, I didn't know that. Did he really? Yeah, so Stephen Stills. <laughs> and now lived... he's got a band room named after him at UF, doesn't he? Yeah, he Steven... lived in Gainesville. <laughs> yeah, I mean, and and and, and the uh, you know the focal point uh, was Lippum's Music Store, and mm-hmm. Lippum's Music Store was um, famous. Number one, they had a great selection of musical instruments and uh, all kinds of amps and speakers and all of that. The most significant thing about Lippum's music store is that they would finance uh, any music instrument or equipment that you needed. And they didn't go through a finance company because, you know, when, uh, you know, Tom Petty or the Almond Brothers, uh, Uh you know, needed equipment. There's a famous story. The Almond Brothers had their equipment stolen and they went to Lippum's. This must have been around 1969 or 70. Mm Mm-hmm. 
and said, uh, you know, we're a band and we don't have any equipment. And uh, Lippum said, uh, Buster Lippum, I think, was uh, the person running the operation at that point with his father, maybe. Anyhow, they said, no problem. What do you need? And they just made their list of all the equipment they need. And they say, well, how much, you, you know, you know. Uh, how do you want to make payments, you know? And they say, well, we're, you know, you got to pay us $50 every single week until it's paid. And they'd write it out on on a piece of paper. Wow. And that was the financing wow. uh, at Lipham's. So during... An IOU, basically. Yeah. And, uh, yeah. And do you know uh, that um, every one of the bands that they financed always figured out a way to pay them? It was that's, a badge of honor. Yeah. yeah really wow. That's trust. Yeah. And it almost just comes down to like, you know, these people treated us so well, mm-hmm. you know, we take it personally and so seriously. We just want to repay it. Well, can you think of, of uh, what would happen if you didn't pay and the word got out? Yeah, right. Oh, yeah. We're going to change the name of the band to the Deadbeats. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> Wow, I love these stories that you tell. So, at what point did you become Tom Petty's lawyer? What do, are are you allowed to say? He has an attorney client privilege. Yeah. No, I. Yeah, this is. I mean, was this uh, the statute of limitations is passed on okay. this? Uh, so <laughs> there's no. No, I. Um, so I, I take the uh, Florida bar in July of 1971, pass it, got sworn in. Wait, wait, in the middle of all these music festivals, you know, you put on music festivals and then you pass the bar. Wait, 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 wait. I told you I took three months off. So so three months from uh, the end of July, whatever that was, April, the end of April, I think, guess I, I said, okay, uh, it's time for Jeffrey Meldon to take a break. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. And, uh, you know, I put my pot away and I started, you know, like going okay i got i got a focus here good for you and uh i don't know if i put it away completely but at least at least five days a week when i went to the i went to the law school library okay Mm -hmm. yeah and uh i i knew that i couldn't uh discipline myself if i was at home so i would go to the library at nine in the morning and my goal was be there from nine to five and uh even if and i would you know have to study and it was hard because my mind was very fogged from the two or three years before that. You know, I mean, you have to understand. Everything you learned is, <laughs> got smoked away. You got, yeah. So anyhow, I was, you know, and, and, and actually I evolved into, you know, the hippie attorney. Uh, because I grew my hair. I never cut my hair. It kept growing, and pretty soon it was down to my butt. Oh, wow. <laughs> so, so, so. I had to take my hair and put it in a ponytail. Yeah. You, you know, Hunter, you know what it's like. If your hair grows long, you got to sometimes yeah. put it in a ponytail, yeah. you know, yeah. to yeah. operate. And and, uh, and so I passed the bar and, you know, I'm going, okay, uh, what am I going to, you know, wear and do and stuff? I very purposely decided that I wanted to be the best looking hippie attorney in court of anybody. Yes. Good so for you. I went down to Miami to the Dadeland Mall. And I remember shopping. I got these suits. And back then we had high-heeled boots, okay? <gasps> and, okay, I think I know and, exactly what so I would wear high-heeled boots oh into, into the courthouse with my, <laughs> you know, spiffy little, uh, you know, Western-style, uh, you know, uh, outfit. Are they, boleros? Or? I didn't wear yeah. a bolero. I okay. did wear, you know, a tie. However, the um, interesting thing suit. was that um, the judges always – treated me very nicely. Oh, really? I came in, I was well dressed. I looked a little different. I mean, and my beard was getting big. Oh, I mean, it was Wow. Yeah, we're, so we're doing a new TV commercial right now. Mm-hmm. I'm going to give you a scoop. Oh, okay. <laughs> okay. I love this. So, it's called The Hippie Attorney. And The Hippie Attorney is my son Carrie playing me. Back in the day when I was the hippie attorney, okay, and we went to Williston, Florida, to find a micro mini, a VW micro <gasps> mini bus that's all painted with flower power on it. Okay? No and then we brought in Albert the alligator. Of, uh-huh. of course, he's uh, Albert's our partner at the uh-huh. uh, University of Florida, the Gators, and so. We incorporated all of this and we did flashbacks. So they said to me, Jeffrey, we need some pictures 
of you as the hippie attorney, okay? And you dug them up. And I dug them up, and they are embedded now into this 30-second TV commercial. I can't (laughs) wait to see this. Anyhow, the hair was flowing, and, you know. uh, Wow. I open up my office in November. Mm -hmm. I remember uh, it was uh, November 1971. Mm -hmm. And... um, I had been still, I was still involved with what was going on in, in the music scene. And, uh, you know, I was talking with, uh, you know, Tom Petty and Tommy Ledden. And I said, hey, you know, I'm a lawyer. <laughs> and I passed the bar. I said, you guys, you guys want a lawyer? I said, let's go. You know, so, so. Uh, you guys break the law? Yeah. No, well, well actually it was uh, music development. And I oh, was, cool. I was reading all these law books about being a music lawyer. Really? And that was my, I was trying to figure out, is there, was there a way to be a music lawyer in Gainesville, Florida? Because we had this rich tradition, you know, uh, you know, not only, um, you know, later on Tom Petty and the Heartbreakers, but all the groups that preceded it during the 60s. I mean, you know, the Eagles and, you know, mm-hmm. Crosby, Stills, Nash and, uh, mm-hmm. you know, all the other folks that, you know, were part of the Gainesville scene. It, it's it's amazing. There's nine members of the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame that are um, have close ties and lived in Gainesville. Now, I want to go through this. Don Felder and, of course, Bernie Ledden from the Eagles. You got Tom Petty. Well, and then you got Tom Petty and all the Heartbreakers. That's five. And Stephen Stills. And Stephen Stills. Who am I missing? Bo Diddley. (gasps) Bo Diddley. Oh, my goodness. Yes. So you talk about a seminal rock and roller. How How many musical groups have copied Bo Diddley's? Mm-hmm. Okay, that was, you know, the Bo Diddley beat that has been emulated by more rock and rollers. If you uh, Google Bo Diddley and look at his Wikipedia page or mm-hmm. whatever, you know, mm-hmm. it, it's amazing how many artists emulated Bo Diddley. Mm-hmm. And I know he had a tough time, you know, getting royalties from Bo Diddley beat from the Bo Diddley. Correct. Beat. I mean, that was a time when people didn't have contracts and that, uh, you know, there were a few artists that, you know, were able to get royalties, but a lot of artists got screwed. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Isn't that sad? So is that what, what you wanted to do? What's to that? To help, help the artists from, I guess... I think of Heart Song Barracuda and the the way they describe the record labels and the music business. And, you know, they're there to make the music, but you got to sign a contract and you don't know what you're signing. Well, I wasn't that sophisticated, Hunter. No? Okay, sorry. <laughs> I, was, I was a young hippie lawyer reading a book or two and Tom Petty and Tommy Ledden and, the, you know, Mud Crutch. They'd come into my law office and we'd sit down. And my goal was to help them develop their career. Okay. So, uh, you know, they said, well, you know, we need to play music, you know, at different venues and try to expand what we're doing. So uh, through my uh, ingenuity, I I booked them into the Holiday Inn at Lake City. And uh, right off of I-75 at US 90, right? And and for those of you listeners that know Lake City back in the early 70s, the Holiday Inn room there was pretty hopping. And uh, it was, was, you know, I'm sure Ocala had one one room here that was, you know, you know, popular. No, no, no. You are you haven't made it. You're not successful until you're at the Holiday Inn in Lake City. <laughs> so, so I book them in six days. I think I think it was six hundred dollars. Wow! Okay. But but back then you got to multiply it by four or five times. So you know yeah. maybe it was the equivalent of three thousand dollars for a week. However, they got to play in front of a new audience, and they got to you know uh, you know be there and experience something different than mm-hmm. the dubs. Mm-hmm. Okay, yeah. And, so after about three days, I get a call from Tom Petty. He's going, Jeffrey, he said, the manager there only wants me to play top 40, and we want to play our own music. Yeah. Okay? Oh, yeah. <laughs> so I said, well, Tom, what's your solution? What are you going to do about it? You know? Yeah. He says, well, 
um, I can't change this guy's mind. He said, so this is what we're doing. He said, every time we play one of our own songs, we introduce it as a new top 40 hit by somebody else. <laughs> Good idea. Very clever. So that was Tom Petty's workaround as far as what the manager at the Holiday Inn in Lake City uh, did to uh, try to have him. And, of course, people want to hear top 40 when mm-hmm. they go to you know, the bar at the Holiday Inn, yeah. right? They, because they want to hear the songs they know. The songs they know. Yeah. So, I mean, I understood that. And um, as the the group got going, we would meet uh, at my office and, you know, just kind of talk about things. However, there were limits because, you know, there were lots of bars in Gainesville and they could play that. And that's really where uh, Tom and uh, the group, you know, learned their chops, mm-hmm. you know, by playing a lot. Yeah. And any anybody, I mean, I don't think, uh, you know, they, they really didn't hit it big until seven or eight years later. What is it, Damn the Torpedoes? Mm-hmm. It was probably their, you know, biggest album that really broke out. There was a couple albums before, but that was the album that really took off. So they um, they were learning how to be musicians. And Tom was just starting to write. I don't think any song that he wrote in that era was ever recorded uh, later on and put on any one of his big um, albums because as a writer, you're you're perfecting your your skill. So anyhow, I, um, my wife was from Daytona Mm -hmm. and uh, her best friend, one of her best friends going, growing up was Albert T. Badgie and he had moved down to Miami to work with the number one promoter in South Florida, a guy named Lee Campbell. Mm-hmm. And uh, they were doing the big stadium, I think arena shows. I don't know if they were doing stadium shows or not, uh, but they were doing the big shows down uh-huh. there. So I called Albert and I said, hey, Albert, I said, I'm, I'm representing this great group, Mud Crutch, and they're really good. And, you know, I want to see if we can get them to open up for a big arena show. So I got a, uh, a, a, it was probably a, a reel to reel. I'm trying to think if yeah. we had cassettes back probably then. Not. In 19, probably reel to reel. Whatever it was, you know, maybe it, maybe it was a, it wasn't a cartridge. Oh, the eight tracks? <laughs> probably not an eight track. I don't either. think it was an eight track. Uh, anyhow, whatever it was, I took it down uh-huh. to Miami uh, and I, you know, met Lee Campbell and Albert and they had an office and they were buzzing and they were doing big shows all the time. They were the big South Florida promoter, the, the number one promoter down there. So I said, okay, guys, we got mud crutch here. And my, you know, my goal is to get them to start playing down here in South Florida. Can we get them to open, be the opening act, on, you know, for a major act coming through? Yeah. So... <clears throat> They listened to it and they listened to it and said, okay, that's good. And then they sat me down and they taught me what the rules of the road are. Oh, what are the rules of the road? Well, that booking agencies would have, and today the same way, have a stable of clients. So they have their major acts that are their headliners, but they also have uh, a lot of other acts that are up and coming. Mm Mm-hmm. They don't want to promote Mud Crutch or Tom Petty. They want to promote their up and coming acts. So when you would go, when you, even today, when you go to a concert and, you know, the opening act is somebody you never heard of, nine out of ten times, it's the booking agency that uh, makes that part of the deal, that they want their opening acts to open for their headliners, and that that is how they develop talent and they mm-hmm. develop a following. Yeah. So oh, anyhow, God. I struck out. Ah, <laughs> because and, it wasn't up to you and, at that point. Yeah, and, and about this time, so my, this is probably 1972 now, right? Mm-hmm. And my, you know, my uh, law practice is starting to really blossom and uh, do really well. Mm-hmm. I. I I would take any any case that came in. It does. It didn't matter if it was, you know, a divorce, form a corporation, yeah. you were arrested. You know, people you, like the hippie <laughs> lawyer here. Yeah, <laughs> I'll take and, everyone. So I I started out just you know whatever 
whatever walked in the door, you know, and I was in a building with a lot of really great lawyers. So when the clients would come in, I would sit there and I'd interview them and talk to them, figure out what the problems were and the issues. And then uh, after five o'clock, I'd go talk to whoever the a lawyer was that knew the most about that kind of a case. <laughs> and, and, and I, I would go. Already <laughs> utilized your resources hey, right. around yeah. you. <laughs> Jack, tell me, tell me what you think about this case and where we should move on it and what to do next, you know? I wound up doing great work just by having all these great resources yeah. around me and not being shy about asking for help. Because, yeah. ah. you know, doctors, they go through an internship and they're trained when they uh, start, you know, getting out into the real world. Thank God. <laughs> Although they still call it a practice. <laughs> However, lawyers don't have that. Okay. Really? No. Oh. No, we don't have that. So it's like you're thrown out, you know, into the water and it's like swim or sink. Yeah. Now, a lot of people, they'll say, oh, well, I'm going to go work for the prosecutor first or the public defender. Yeah. Some lawyers, they go work for companies, you know, insurance defense firms or something where they kind of, you know, learn their chops. However, a lot of lawyers, at least back then, you know, I just hung up a shingle. Yeah. And I, I had a thousand business cards printed, and I'd walk up they and they weren't handwritten. They weren't handwritten, Hunter. They, but I would walk up and down University Avenue, meeting people and shaking hands. And at the end of the conversation, I'd say, "Oh well, you know, I'm Jeffrey Meldon. I'm a new lawyer in town, wow, and if you, uh, you know, need any uh, help, give me a call." Wow. So pretty soon, like within three years. Um, I had three paralegals and another uh, attorney uh, working for me. Wow! In three that. years. In three years, making those connections. And, and we your... and and you guys don't know this, but until 1978, it was illegal for lawyers to advertise. There was mm. no lawyer TV ads, no billboards, huh. no radio, uh, none of that. But and you could advertise cigarettes and you're gonna, <laughs> yes, alcohol. You're gonna, yeah. Really? Cigarette. You could not advertise yeah. lawyers. And, and, and then, uh, you know, the Bates decision came out in uh, uh, 1978 from the United States Supreme Court. And they said there is the First Amendment freedom of speech. And by the way, you know, lawyers have the same right as anybody else. Yeah. So when I was in the early 70s in Gainesville, uh, the only way you got a case was by word of mouth. Ah, so you're walking up and gotcha. down university handing out your business cards. And I knew a lot of people from the candle people because we were involved. You know, I had mentioned, you know, we were involved in the, the food co-op and we knew people from the the learning community. We knew people from the newspaper. We knew yeah. people from the music scene. So I did have a core of people that I had met over the 14 months that it took from the time I moved to Gainesville until um, I opened up my law practice. At any time, did you think of running for mayor? I did briefly. Did you really? I did not know that. But then I thought, I said, somebody's going to get all upset because I'm going to smoke a joint. <laughs> 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 you didn't put the pot away forever. <laughs> and so I just, you know, I didn't want anybody invading my privacy, oh, you know. Yeah. And, and Gainesville Green yeah. rears its ugly head again. Right. <laughs> well, it, Green. It, yeah, I mean, you know, we... We were, you know, it was fine. And, and I will tell you, um, the Gainesville community, Ocala as well, very, very friendly. I started practicing in, in Ocala shortly after I was in Gainesville because wherever there was, you know, uh, somebody who needed help, I was available. So I've been in, in the Ocala community for years and years and years. Wow. I've had offices, re, you know, last year we opened up our first permanent official building rat across the street from Advent Hospital. Mm -hmm. and on 441. On yeah. 441, yeah. Uh, yeah, it was a beautiful building, too. I was actually there for the grand opening. Jeff, your motto for Meldon Law is, won't back down. And uh, you were Tom's very first attorney way back when. You must have a, a special place in your heart for Tom Petty, huh? You know, I've I've always enjoyed... Uh, Tom Petty's music um, and getting to know him when he when I got to know him he was 20 years old oh wow so it Real was baby. a baby yeah mm -hmm. I mean you know and I wasn't much older 
let's see, I think I was 26. <gasps> and so, you know, we're, you know, a couple couple guys trying to figure out, you know, <laughs> where are we going? <laughs> Hold on, smoke this first. <laughs> Tom smokes a lot, by the way. Oh, yeah, yeah, I bet. Yes. I bet. But yes. it, it fuels the creativity. <laughs> For him, it certainly That's did. Funny. I mean, uh, whatever the magic was, he he spent the next four or five years after 1971 and two mm-hmm. really evolving his music i mm-hmm. think um i when i heard them first playing i heard some great talent that didn't have great original music and it evolved because in 19 they were doing mostly cover songs mm-hmm. and a few of their own original music wow which was top wow. 40 Top yeah. 40. <laughs> yeah. No, top no. I mean, yeah. think about it, you know. Only I mean, uh, because yeah, they're a new band, you know. They were oh, a yeah. new band and they they did their own music. They did, you know, they 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 as they would uh, write new music, then they would yeah. add it into the set. Mm-hmm. So, yeah. kind of sneak it in there a little but bit. But believe me, you know, the crowd went crazy, yeah. uh, you know, uh, when they'd play Johnny Be Good because everybody knew it. Mm-hmm. So, so it, it, you know when you're a performer, you have to recognize your your strengths as far as getting the audience up and rocking and going. Yeah. So right. if they wanted to do both, it did take a um, a period of time. I I came to realize as my law practice was growing that it, in order for an artist to make it big, they were going to have to go to a big city market uh, for their music. So. With uh, music back in 1970, there were the two biggest rock markets were L.A. and New York. Mm-hmm. New York was big too. Uh, country, of course, was Nashville. Yeah. However, um, it was very difficult in a minor market. Even though we had some uh, small recording studios in Gainesville, it, it was very difficult because the movers and shakers, the people that. Uh, signed the record deals, the people that made uh, the records, the people that uh, made sure that uh, it was properly uh, promoted to all, marketed to all the radio DJs like you guys, Mm -hmm, right? mm -hmm. Have you had any guys come out here and hand you $100 bills? No, that's that's illegal now. Now is the keyword. I think Alan Freed got in trouble doing that. Payola Plugola. But, you know, the radio stations weren't paying them squat, so they had to, like, uh, you know, they were famous in doing these amazing things, and uh, in their own mind, they were going, we're only getting paid fairly for what we're doing, you know, so, uh, you know, what's a little payola? So you guys don't get hundred dollar bills Not thrown anymore. at you and no, stuff. And I've never experienced that, <laughs> unfortunately. And of course, I learned about it in school and at my first radio station. When I, you know, you have to go through all your tax forms that you have to sign yeah. and everything, and they slipped in a payola thing, and I had to sign that. And I'm like, really? This still happens? Really? Uh-oh. <laughs> wow! Yeah. Well, so we have to sign that we're not going to do that. Now I do believe that it's probably done through relationships. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, you know, I'm not sure, uh, you know, exactly how it's done. It all has to be accounted for. It has yeah, to be there's account- very strict accounting. Do it. It's not as blatant as, here's 100 bucks, okay, I'll play your song. Yeah. You know? I know, but, you know, uh, when, when you, you know, you go over to um, someone's home and you're mm-hmm. hanging out, and they bring out, you know, two hundred dollar bottles of wine yeah, and right. champagne, and you know, you're hanging out, <laughs> and, and then you're... they ask you a favor, yeah, and then, yeah. you, and then you wind up, but uh, yeah, so <laughs> yeah, I'm going to educate you guys here. We're going to turn Wind FM <laughs> into so a new cool. age. <laughs> well, that's okay because I know a good lawyer to call Jeffrey Melvin. <laughs> so anyhow, so that's my story, and I'm sticking to it. Uh, yeah. <laughs> Can I ask real quick? Like, how long did you keep in touch with Tom when he moved away? Did you still advise him on anything? Or? I didn't. It no. was it was like my life was going so fast yeah. at that really? time. You know, I met my wife. You know, we were, you know, uh, I, I another story was that in 1972, Minnie Ripperton and her husband, Dick Rudolph, moved Out to Gainesville. Out of Gainesville, yeah. 
Well, so my Aunt Pearl uh, from Pittsburgh lived next door to Dick Rudolph. And so when Dick and Minnie moved to Gainesville, uh, we got together and we decided that we wanted to start a performing arts theater uh, together. And uh, I was involved with Dick and Minnie. We were best friends when um, their daughter, Maya Rudolph, came home from Alachua General Hospital. We were there the first day she came home because we were that close with them. Maya Rudolph from Saturday Night Live. Correct. Yeah. Wow. So I saw Maya, you know, when she was one day old. Oh, no wow. way. Yes. And and so, anyhow, Dick and Minnie and I, we, oh, let's do it. See, Minnie was with a group called the Rotary Connection mm-hmm. uh, up in Chicago. Dick was going to law school at Boston uh, University Law School. And they, it was really... Uh, quite a magical time. They moved down to Gainesville. I'm going, I, you know, Dick came from a very well-to-do family and uh, Minnie had been uh, pretty successful with the Rotary Connection. And then uh, all of a sudden, you know, they're down in Gainesville. Why? They, they wanted to come down there. They, uh, you know, they had, uh, Minnie had a son, Ringo, and uh, they just wanted to chill out and they were going to do some projects in Gainesville. So we went around looking for a performing arts theater, and we couldn't find one. Mm-hmm. And then eventually, we did. Um, we found one possible um, place. It was called the Cotton Club, and it had been on the Chitlin circuit uh-huh. back in the day. And it's right near where Depot Park is. Mm-hmm. And uh, we had somebody take a look at it, and they said, "This is going to cost a friggin' fortune." <laughs> okay, to get to this, fix up, to fix up and stuff. Um, and then Dick and Minnie were writing songs. So you got, you know, Ringo, who was three or four years old, and then little Maya, who was just born, and then Minnie's at home, and she's writing with Dick, and uh, and then they came up with the song Love and You. Yes. And at the end of the song Love and You, they always say, Maya, 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 Maya. That was a, l- a lullaby to oh, Maya Rudolph. I never knew that. Yes. Oh. So when you guys play "Loving You" by uh, Minnie Ripperton, yeah, and her you voice listen so to, high. You, yeah. well, she had like six her octave range. range. It yeah. was it was crazy. So anyhow, um, and and I remember going with Dick and Minnie out to a restaurant out in Bivens Arm uh, in uh, Gainesville with um, an A and R person from Epic Records. Oh wow. And that's where they sealed the deal uh, to uh, move out to L.A. And that's where she started, um, you know, recording albums. And, of course, her famous album, Perfect Angel, with Stevie Wonder, uh, was co-written with Dick Rudolph. And he was co-producing it with uh, Stevie Wonder. And that's the album that Lovin' You is on. Wow. I like... Gainesville music history it really with Jeffrey yeah. Meldon. Wow. This is incredible. I haven't even started. We're going to come <laughs> yeah. back. No, because from 1974 to 1978, I founded a, the Great Southern Music Hall, mm-hmm. which was the number one music uh, forum, the performing arts theater in the history of North Central Florida. We had more acts and the, the greatest acts that ever came through Gainesville. Like who? Well, uh, let's see. Uh, Jimmy Buffett was oh. on there. We we had Jerry Lee Lewis, and we had oh BB uh, King. Yeah, and I have stories about you know all these uh, different artists. Um, there were um, an incredible array. Uh, Waylon Jennings was from mm. country. We had uh, you know uh, there, there was a guy named uh, you know Earl Scruggs and oh, Lester Flat. They 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 actually Scruggs opened opened the show. Dave Brubeck, who is uh, the most um, well known jazz musician of his day, he uh, came in with his sons and he booked his show as two generations of Brubeck. And what was interesting, he had played for my father three or four times in Cleveland from you know the fifty to fifty six. So we went and had dinner at the Primrose Inn, which was a nice restaurant across the street from the music hall. 
And uh, it was Dave Brubeck, his sons, and myself. And I said, Dave, you know, we should really book this as two generations of Meldons presenting two generations of Brubecks. Oh, that's cool. So there were two other acts that my father booked that we also had at the music hall. Uh, One was Count Basie. (gasps) And the other one was um, B.B. King. Oh, wow. So anyhow, so the, the, the Great Southern Music Hall uh, turned out to be an incredible um, experience. Uh, somewhere I have a list of uh, some of the acts yeah. uh, that, you know, that uh, we, we had. And I, I, I really think it, it, this, uh, we need a whole show on the Great we Southern do. Music. Yeah. Okay. Because <laughs> I, I haven't even gotten started. If you, yeah, you know, there, right now, I commissioned the house photographer to go back almost 50 years to dig up his negatives of the shows. Hmm. And um, we found 21 negatives from 1974 to 1975 when he, when John Moran, who's a famous uh, photographer, Mm -hmm. uh, he had those stashed away. And uh, for five years I've been bugging him to get them out. He finally got them out, digitized them, uh, we blew them up, and we're preparing a, a museum exhibit, the history of the Great Southern Music Hall in Gainesville with the uh, hundred or so artists that uh, we brought there. Where is this going to be? It's going to be at the Matheson Museum next fall. Wow. It's, it's probably, and then we're going to have we're going to have live presentations. Um, myself and other members. Um, that were involved with the Great Southern are going to all kind of give talks about the backstories of you know wow. the different artists and how we you know yeah we'd get them a, a a trailer for their dressing room right and they'd go get drunk lock the door and we'd have to break the door to grab them out you know Jerry Jerry Lee Lewis come on Jerry like you know we got eight hundred people sitting in here you know yeah. let's go and you know and then and we bought a brand new piano it was expensive i don't know steinway or whatever it was and and uh jerry lee lewis comes in and he starts jumping on the piano and banging at <laughs> his foot and we're sitting there going, oh my god our brand new piano no, we just had and jerry and we had to bring somebody in to fix it up but it was a hell of a show i and i that's one of the pictures i have is uh, Jerry Lee Lewis uh, banging away. But, of course, you know, I was into the blues, too. So, mm-hmm. you know, um, we had uh, Muddy Waters, um, Bo Diddley, Howlin' Wolf. Uh, we had the reggae stars in at the time. You know, uh, there was, um, let's see, Peter Tosh and uh, uh, Jimmy Cliff from The Harder They Fall. And we did movies. We did The Harder They Fall. And we did all kinds wow. of uh, movie productions then as well. However, um, I, I've got an appointment, so I'm going to have to stop yeah, right I now. Know, and, and, I'm so and, uh, sorry. And here, I, you know, we preface this with our podcasts don't go as long as yours. And we've been going for an hour. You're kidding. <laughs> so the way you tell stories, is just, it just sucks you right in. Yeah. And we are right there. So we would love yeah. to have you back sometime. I'm there. Yeah. I'm here. I'm yeah. I'm ready to go. I love talking about this stuff because I'm still very connected with it. And, uh, you know, we're, we've been involved with um, promoting the Tom Petty Festival in Gainesville yeah. over the years. Oh, and, yeah. and so it's not like I've gone away. We're still there. Oh. Uh, you mm-hmm. know, we're, you know, the official law firm partner of the Florida Gators. Mm-hmm. We actually, we're now the official uh, law firm partner of the Gator Band as well. Oh, cool. really? Congratulations. Yeah. yeah, they needed a big truck to move their equipment, so they came to us and said, Melbourne. Jeffrey, how about a, getting us a big truck and we'll be your band? You oh, so, I love it. So, and you love music? It all ties together. Yeah, so my, here's my dream commercial. Okay, my dream commercial is to have the 420 members of the Gator Band, mm-hmm. okay, out on the football field, mm-hmm. spelling Meldon, Okay, mm-hmm. playing won't back down, 
Okay. Oh, there you go. And then, you know, have have my son Carrie and myself, you know, run out in the middle of the football field with the band playing Won't yeah. Back Down. I love it. Okay. That's, awesome. That's a great Do you come up with all your own commercials? A lot of it. Really? Like the golf cart commercial? And well, the... we have, you know, Freddie Weeby and some other uh, mm-hmm. folks, but my son and I work a lot on the concepts and the... We, we come up with these different ideas. Because so, they're uh, very creative. Yeah. Well, very, thank you. Very, creative. Yeah, yeah well, we, we, I'm sick and tired of seeing uh, lawyer commercials on TV that are dumb and boring. So mm-hmm. we decided to make them all funny. I love and, it. I uh, love it. I can't wait to see the hippie one. Oh, the hippie. To that. Wait to see the hippie. Attorney. You're, you're going to uh, really enjoy that one. Yeah. That one's one of my favorites. Uh, so. Wow. Well, Jeffrey Meldon, Meldon Law, thank you so much for coming and joining our podcast. Check out yours as well. What's your podcast name again? It's called Meldon Law and Friends. Cool. It's every Tuesday at 4 p.m. It's mm-hmm. on Facebook as well as YouTube and 37 audio platforms. That's awesome. Wow. Very cool. Pretty much anywhere you get your podcast. You'll anywhere you get your podcast, so, Spotify yeah. or wherever. Thank you so much for being here, Jeffrey Meldon. It's so great to meet you. Thank you for the stories. Thank you for the background. And I have a million more questions and I hope you get to come back. Oh yeah. We're only getting started.